0: I'm going to read Psalm 49. For the director of music of the Sons of Korah, a psalm. Hear this, all you peoples. Listen, all who live in this world, both low and high, rich and poor alike. My mouth will speak words of wisdom. The utterance from my heart will give understanding. I will turn my ear to a proverb, with the harp I will expound my riddle. Why should I fear when evil days come, when wicked deceivers surround me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of their great riches? No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. The ransom for a life is costly, No payment is ever enough that he should live on forever and not see decay. For all can see that wise men die. The foolish and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Their tombs will remain their houses forever. Their dwellings for endless generations, though they had named lands after themselves. But man, despite his riches, does not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve their sayings. Like sheep, they are destined for the grave, and death will feed on them. The upright will rule over them in the morning, Their forms will decay in the grave, far from their princely mansions. But God will redeem my life from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. Do not be overawed when a man grows rich, when the splendor of his house increases. For he will take nothing with him when he dies. His splendor will not descend with him. Though while he lived he counted himself blessed, and men praise you when you prosper, he will join the generation of his fathers who will never see the light of life. A man who has riches without understanding is like the beasts that perish. This is God's Word.
1: Well, good morning. Let me add my welcome. I'm Simon Pedley, one of the ministers here. And we're in the final week of our little series through some of these psalms. Psalms, the the songbook of the Bible. And uh, these songs written thousands of years ago uh, are believers engaging with uh, the the, the different circumstances of life. And songs that we can very often um, relate to hugely and be pointed to Jesus, be pointed to God through them. But, of course, they're unlike any other songs that we might find in that they're in the Bible. They're they're not only the songs of human beings. They're inspired by God himself. Uh, So I hope you're inspired to uh, take the whole book of Psalms and go away and have a look at some of the others after these few weeks that we've had in them. Now, imagine that you're stopped on the street maybe later this week by a journalist. They've got a microphone that says BBC or Channel 4 or something on it. And they, uh, they're doing Vox Pops on the street, just taking little street interviews. And uh, you're not expecting it, but they just shove it in front of you. And uh, they've got a question for you. And they say, um, what are you worth? Uh, what are you worth? Maybe you just run away. Uh, the only time that that sort of thing happened to, uh, to myself and to Tree, we were coming out of a cinema. Somebody from Sky News shoved a microphone in our face and wanted to ask us lots of questions about the film we'd just seen and uh, suddenly the, the important art of being able to speak in sentences completely eluded me so needless to say we didn't feature on sky news that night um but maybe you're better at that sort of thing and uh, somebody asks you what are you worth and you've got about half a second to come up with something what goes through your mind what am i worth I don't know, uh, how much is in my wallet at the moment? Uh, Think through my current account, savings, um, have I got a house, car, add it all up, what am I worth? Um, Maybe you'd have the presence of mind to say something more profound than uh, something to do with money and wealth. But very often when we ask what someone is worth, the answer involves pound signs or dollar signs. Think of uh, football players. In the transfer season, he's worth so many uh, millions or tens of millions of pounds. But it can be more pervasive than that. At work, we might scan our colleagues at uh, various levels of hierarchy and silently wonder, how much is he or she worth? More than me? Less than me? Meeting somebody new in any context might be a question that comes to mind. We see the way somebody's dressed Uh, the size of their house, what kind of car they drive. And mentally, we might be sizing up their finances. What are they worth? Uh, Spelling it out like that makes it sound quite crass and superficial, doesn't it? Uh, Which it is, and we know it. And almost anyone you speak to would say, money isn't everything. And I say almost everyone because I recently came across an article entitled How to Attract Wealth, Conquering the Money Isn't Everything Syndrome. Uh, And believe it or not, the the author was a church minister. So we'll leave that one to one side. Um, But there is a tendency in society to assess somebody's worth, their value, in terms of their wealth. And the more we view our worth in that sense, the more obsessed we'll become with wealth. We'll start to pursue wealth at any cost. We'll start to be afraid of losing it. start to look down on those that we perceive as well-off than us, less well-off than us in obviously subtle, unspoken ways. We wouldn't be too blatant about it. And of course, we might view people who are richer than us with a mixture of envy uh, or maybe resentment or even fear if those rich people are against us. Now, Psalm 49 is a song which puts riches in their place, the last few weeks we've looked at Psalms of David. But if you look at the original title of Psalm 49, just uh, above verse 1, you can see it says, For the director of music of the sons of Korah, a psalm. And the sons of Korah were temple musicians. And uh, is it fair to say, uh, musicians, that um, musicians are not exactly famous for uh, being wealthy? Is that, is that fair? I couldn't possibly comment um, I'm sure there are plenty of exceptions. Uh, but maybe we can imagine people arriving at the, uh, the temple in Jerusalem, and the sons of Korah are there with their, their harps and their lyres, playing away, and their slightly worn clothes, strumming away on their harps and their lyres, calling everyone to attention. Everyone that's coming into the temple passes these musicians. And here's what they're saying in verse 1. Hear this, all you peoples. Listen, all who live in this world, both low and high, rich and poor alike. My mouth will speak words of wisdom. The utterance from my heart will give understanding. I will turn my ear to a proverb. With the harp, I will expound my riddle. All people, they say, everyone in the world, listen. This message about wealth is for rich and poor alike, for the high and the low in society. So listen up, say these musicians. And once they've got everyone's attention, they deliver lines like verse 10. For all can see that wise men die. The foolish and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. And verse 16 and 17. Don't be overawed when a man grows rich, when the splendor of his house increases. For he'll take nothing with him when he dies. <laughs> Ouch. Ooh. So. So we've been spending time in the last few weeks in psalms of joy, psalms of thanksgiving. This is rather different. Uh, Gone are the the fanfares of celebration and the the kind of major chords of joy. The Sons of Korah are strumming a a sort of edgy, plaintive soundtrack, all a bit indie. Uh, Minor chords and ironic expressions on the faces of the band. Uh, I haven't got a verse to prove that that's how they did it, but uh, it might help to set the tone. Um, And it As we look at it, it's a song of two parts. And each part ends with a similar line. The first part ends with verse 12. Verse 12 says, but man, despite his riches, does not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. So far, so bleak. And the second part ends very similarly with verse 20. A man who has riches without understanding is like the beasts that perish. Did you spot the subtle difference there? There's an understanding to be had. There's a wisdom to be imparted in this psalm to both rich and poor alike. And that wisdom will make all the difference as to whether we're just in the total gloom of verse 12 or the, the glimmer of light of verse 20. So let's have a look at the two halves of this song. The message of the first half is that uh, there is an exorbitant price on your head, which no amount of riches could ever pay. So let's have a look at that in verses 1 to 12. There's an exorbitant price on your head. The writer starts off in a place of trouble and fear in verse 5. He says, why should I fear when evil days come, when wicked deceivers surround me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of their great riches. He's being oppressed, somehow, by some wealthy people. No names are named. Uh, Nothing is made explicit except that they are wicked deceivers. They're corrupt and they can't be trusted. Now, perhaps uh, the ruling regime of Israel of of the time was exploiting the citizens of the day. There are Plenty of periods of Old Testament history where that was true. Or it could be a wealthy family or a few individuals or some kind of firm acting a bit like a mafia, uh, indulging in organized crime, using their wealth to harm others and, and seemingly getting away with it. And as a result, there are two things going on in those verses. The poor psalmist fears the rich and the rich are trusting in their riches. Now, it's easy to think of international examples of that kind of thing and uh, point the finger of of blame at governments like uh, Haiti, North Korea, maybe maybe now Tunisia, maybe Egypt, uh, maybe the other Arab countries where this unrest at the moment seems to be spreading. Or closer to home, are there rich people or groups of rich people in your life that you fear in this kind of way? I guess it could be people at work, the management or the company directors, the the colleagues whose wealth has been accumulated by ruthlessly treading on others, maybe on you. Or maybe there's others uh, who experience a kind of inexplicable brick wall when their case comes up in court or in decisions by local or national government. And corruption seems to be the, the likely explanation. And the psalmist faces a situation, something like that. But his response is, in verse 5, why should I fear? Why should I fear? Does that seem at first uh, a little bit bizarrely unruffled? A kind of cold, poker-faced, even slightly aloof response to a painful situation. Well, don't worry, it's not like that. He's not just putting on an unfeeling stiff upper lip and recommending some kind of heartless stoicism. He asks, why should I fear? And then immediately answers his own question in a way that shows why he can just shrug in the face of these wealthy oppressors. And here's why. Riches do nothing for you when you die. Look at verses 7 to 9. No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough that he should live on forever and not see decay. Psalmist says there's an exorbitant price on your head, on everyone's head. There's a payment, a ransom to be paid, which no one can pay. If you've seen the the Austin Powers movies, remember the second film where Dr. Evil asks for not just one million dollars, but a hundred billion dollars. And everyone falls about laughing because he's gone back in time and he's forgotten the the changes that inflation makes to the value of money. And no one in 1969 can come up with a hundred billion dollars. It's just too high, too exorbitant. And here the demand for a ransom is so high. That no amount of riches could ever pay it. And this ransom is for a person's life. It's the ransom for a life. The ransom, the redemption price for a life. Which if paid, if this could be paid, it will enable somebody to live on forever and not see decay in verse 9. But no one can pay it. Now this might sound odd. What are we talking about here? What is this ransom? Ransom. It almost sounds uh, like a cryogenics or something like that. You know, the, the latest fad of the ultra, ultra rich who pay apparently $200,000 to be frozen just after they die. Uh, in the hope that sometime in the, the far distant future, medical technology will have advanced sufficiently uh, so that they can be thawed out and uh, uh, cured of all the things that were wrong with them. Brought back to life. Enabled to, to keep going. I say the latest fad, but apparently it's been going on since the, uh, the 60s. And apparently in the 70s, there was a cryogenic firm who uh, went bankrupt and uh, nine bodies thawed out. Oops. Um, but is that the kind of thing we're talking about? The, the attempt to prolong life indefinitely by spending money on more and more extreme medical treatments and, and bodily upgrades. Well, no, this this ransom is not payable to the NHS or even to some private Harley Street surgery offering the latest exclusive life preserving uh, procedures. This ransom, according to verse 7, is payable to God. Now, death, biblically speaking, is something over which God has control. Whether we live or die is in his hands. And since human beings first walked the earth, death has been imposed by God as a judgment. The fact that we all die is explained by the Bible as the result of a rebellion. A selfish bid for autonomy on the part of us, on the part of human beings, on the part of the whole human race. We tried to overthrow God, our creator, to whom we owe everything, who gave us life and breath and everything else. Our very existence, we tried to overthrow him. And in that sin, that ridiculous bid for independence, we earned death universal, unavoidable death for low and for high, for rich and for poor alike. And it's God that imposes that death. And so it must be God to whom any ransom must be paid. To release us from that death. And verse 8 is absolutely clear the ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough. I don't know if you remember that horrific case of kidnapping in the US. Uh, A chap called Philip Garrido uh, kidnapped JC Lee Dugard when she was just 11 and then held her captive, hostage for 18 years. Uh, during which time he fathered children with her. And uh, when he was caught, uh, the court that was uh, delivering the, um, uh, the convictions refused bail for Garrido's wife, who'd been involved, understandably. Why would you grant bail to somebody like that? But then they allowed bail to be set for Philip Garrido himself. And you think, what, what? Why allow bail to be set for a man like that? Why even allow for the possibility that he might walk free or even escape before his conviction, before his trial? Well, no, the, the court was making a point. Garrido's bail was set at $30 million, a price that he could never pay. He worked in a print shop. Nobody would be willing to pay $30 million to get Philip Garrido out of jail. The ransom for a life is costly, too costly. The price on our heads is exorbitant. How much are you worth? How much am I worth? Answer, more than we could ever pay. You can't afford to buy yourself out when death comes knocking. Think of your life maybe as a failing company, it's being put into administration, and you're desperately casting around for somebody to, uh, to bid for it, to arrange a takeover bid or a management buyout or something like that, somebody to, to rescue the company, to pay the ransom. But no one can afford it. The only future is liquidation. You'll be stripped of your assets and dissolved. And that is the, the horrific picture. Or verses 10 and 11. For all can see that wise men die. The foolish and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Their tombs will remain their houses forever. Their dwellings for endless generations, though they had named lands after themselves. Maybe the most striking example of that in history is Alexander the Great whose enormous empire stretched from Greece to Egypt to India. He founded at least 20 cities and called most of them Alexandria after himself. You can go to Alexandria in Egypt. You can go to Alexandria in Iraq. You can go to several Alexandrias in Afghanistan. Apparently Kandahar uh, derives from the, the name Alexandria. But what about Alexander himself? You can't go and find him. You can't meet him. He died. At age 32, having just accumulated all of that. And the psalmist is saying, this is the end for everyone. And we all know that, really. Verse 10, all can see that this is the case. The psalmist is saying, wise up, don't bury it, don't act as if this is not the case. The death rate is still one per one person. <laughs> and no amount of NHS reform We'll do anything about that statistic. Don't imagine that we can live forever. You might leave a legacy of some kind, but we won't live on. It's it's become very popular to say of somebody, he lives on through his music. She lives on through her charity. They live on through their art, their writing, their life's work, uh, through the lives that they touch, through their children. And saying that kind of thing is, is meant to be a consolation, but it's Let's face it, it's just a figure of speech. They don't live on. Verse 12 sums it up. And it's bleak, incredibly bleak. Man, despite his riches, does not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. We're all like animals in the end. What a cheerful song. Imagine the doleful, miserable music that this would have been set to. Or maybe it was jolly music that kind of jarred with the content and made it sound sarcastic and bitter. And if the psalm stopped here, that is all we'd have. It would be a sort of cynical, sneering retort. You rich people, you think you've got one over on me? Well, one day we'll all be dead. So there. Great song. Thanks very much, Sons of Korah. You've brightened our day. But it doesn't stop there. In the second half of the song we find an extraordinary beam of light amid all of this darkness and gloom. That ransom, that price on our heads, which no one could pay, can be paid, but not by us. So the second point is this. The God who pays the price. Verses 13 to 20, the God who pays the price. Up until this point... The singer of this psalm has sung of just one destiny for everyone. As verse 10 says, the wise, the foolish, the senseless, they all die. All the same, no distinction. But suddenly, in verse 13, we get a hint that this permanent fate is only for some people, not for all. Verse 13 says, this is the fate of who? Of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve their sayings. Now it seems that some people trust in themselves. Presumably that's similar to trusting in their riches. We often connect the two in our our language and use the language of the self-made man or woman. Their wealth and their possessions are what they've made for themselves and they trust in them. And verse 14 spells out yet again as if we hadn't seen enough of it what lies ahead for some people. Some people are permanently destined for the grave. And there's a rather nasty image there in verse 14 of death feeding on them, like some kind of predator feasting on its spoil in a cave, as their forms decay in the grave, in verse 14, far from their princely mansions. This person is separated from their possessions. Their mansions might still stand, tall and spectacular, like uh, some of the stately homes scattered across the UK. But most of the people who've ever lived in them are long gone. You might remember Shelley's poem, Ozymandias, very evocative of this. I met a traveller from an ancient land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, Near them on the sand, half sunk, Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. It's evocative, isn't it, of this destruction. Somebody once claimed that that poem was written about Australians because the title should be pronounced Aussie Man Dies. Um, I'm not sure about that. But this, um, this fate is the fate of some people, those who trust in themselves according to verses 13 and 14. And there is an alternative, and it shines out of this otherwise dark psalm like a gleaming jewel against the background of blackness. And it's one of the high points of hope in the whole of the Old Testament. In verse 15, the singer suddenly bursts out with a declaration of confidence in the face of death. He says, but God will redeem my life from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. There is a way for the price on your head to be paid. God himself can pay it. No earthly riches could ever be enough. No mere human being could ever, ever pay that ransom or redeem their life or the life of another. But God, the one to whom the ransom is owed is the one who can pay it. Now, isn't that an extraordinary thing? The one that we have offended, the one who imposed the sentence of death, the one who set that impossibly high ransom price in the first place, he is the one who is willing and able to pay it. What incredible mercy! What unfathomable forgiveness! And we can fast forward in time to the coming of Jesus. Here's one way that Jesus described his purpose. The son of man, Jesus himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was that ransom. As Jesus died on the cross, he was making that payment, paying that price, offering the ransom, buying our redemption. Not money, but his life. His life in exchange for our lives. That's what it means to call Jesus our redeemer. He's the one who paid that price. He was God in human flesh dying on the cross in order to pay the ransom that he himself had imposed. What are we worth? What are you worth? Jesus says, you're worth my life. I give my life for you to pay that unpayable ransom. Now, this paying of the ransom by the very one who demands it is so extraordinary that it's hard to find anything in human experience that adequately illustrates it. And I found myself turning again to the the brilliant picture of it in the Narnia stories, uh, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, where Edmund, the boy Edmund, has betrayed Aslan the Lion. He sided with the White Witch against Aslan, but her intention was always to kill him. And so the deal is struck. Aslan will offer his life in place of Edmund's. Aslan will pay the ransom price. But remember this. The White Witch was not the offended party. Aslan was. Aslan was the one that Edmund had defected from, had betrayed. There's a a moment in the dialogue... That makes this clear, just before the witch takes Aslan's life, just before he allows himself to be tied up and shaved and allows the knife to be plunged into him, Aslan reminds the white witch, his offense was not against you. Aslan was the one betrayed, and Aslan was the one, the only one, willing to, uh, and able to make that sacrifice to offer his life and pay that ransom. And so as Aslan dies, Edmund lives. And when Aslan returns, Edmund sees him again. And from that point on, he's wide-eyed with gratitude, full of devotion to Aslan. Of course he is. He finally sees the extraordinary love and mercy of the one who would give his life for someone who betrayed him. Now, do you remember what promises the witch had made to Edmund in order to lure him to her side? Uh, Turkish delight was among them. But uh, much more than that, he would be a prince at her side with all the associated wealth and the power. And after she'd gone, he would be king. They were false promises, of course, but he'd fallen for them. But after everything had happened, after Aslan had died for him, Edmund was able to see just how false and deceitful those promises were. His trust was in Aslan now, not in the witch's false promises of wealth, which could end only in death. So with us, when we've seen the gleaming light of verse 15, that God will ransom our lives from the grave, that he will take us to himself if we trust him, The futility of putting our trust in wealth and riches should be so clear. Verses 16 to 19 underline just how we should feel, having discovered the Son of Man who gave his life to be our ransom. The psalmist writes, Don't be overawed when a man grows rich, when the splendor of his house increases, for he will take nothing with him when he dies. His splendor will not descend with him. Though while he lived, he counted himself blessed, And men praise you when you prosper. He will join the generation of his fathers who will never see the light of life. Riches are temporary. They're great for a while. While he lived, he counted himself blessed. And men praise you when you prosper. But remember how it ends. Riches will not go with him when he dies. And verse 20 brings us to that final conclusion. A man who has riches without understanding without understanding that God can pay our ransom and that nothing else can, is like the beasts that perish. There's an understanding to be had, and the psalmist has laid it out for us. If you understand that there's an exorbitant price on your head, which only God can pay, then you'll understand that there are only two ways to live and only two ways to die. Trust yourself and your riches. You'll be left in the grave like the beasts that perish. But trust Jesus, the son of man, who gave his life as a ransom for many, and God will not leave you in the grave. He'll take you to himself. Well, the sons of Korah have finished their song, and it was an entirely pleasant experience. Uh, Rather uncomfortable lyrics and probably a tune that would make you wince from time to time. But this message is timeless and essential. Put riches in their place. It's crazy and short-sighted to live for them. Don't do it. As we finish, there's just a, a couple of ways that this might apply. Don't fear wealth and don't trust wealth. Don't fear wealth. If we don't have wealth or if we see people around us who are much richer than we are, we can easily be overawed by it or fear those who have it. But, but that's crazy and short-sighted. Why fear what won't last? Death is the great leveller. You and me and Bill Gates will all have exactly the same balance sheet on the day that we die. So why be in awe of his millions? They won't be any advantage to him on that day. Don't spend your life longing to live how the other half lives if you perceive yourself not to be in that half for some rather bizarre reason. Uh, If you do, quite frankly, come on, open your eyes. But poor or rich, our destiny is the same. And the one hope held out to us is the same. So our longing for the rich should be the same as our longing for the poor, that they meet Jesus, the son of man who came to give his life as a ransom for many. And if you do have wealth, don't trust it. That too is crazy and short-sighted. Why trust what won't last? Your financial assets won't be any use to you in the grave. At the gates of heaven, there's no chip and pin card reader. You can't write a check to get yourself in. You won't be able to grab your wallet as you're leaving this world uh, and wave a bunch of notes at the angel at the door of heaven. Only the ransom price of Jesus counts for anything on that day. You need his help. And for proud, self-made people, that can be hard to swallow. But if we allow Psalm 49 to give us some perspective, we won't live for money. If we're faced with a decision, uh, one choice meaning getting more money, one choice meaning not getting so much money, maybe we'll begin to realize that it's not inevitable that we should choose the more money option. There might sometimes be better options. Maybe being devoted to Jesus, who is our unpayable ransom, might mean choosing to spend more time with family, more time with his family, the church here. It might mean giving more to church, keeping less for yourself. And if things go badly, if we're jobless and struggling financially for a long time, or the UK goes into a double-dip recession and we all lose our jobs, or if the world economy rebalances and uh, Europe permanently loses out to China and India and everything is tough for us in the future, well, it'll be tough. But remember to ask yourself, what am I worth? Financially, maybe a bit, maybe a lot, but that's just the short term stuff. What am I really worth? Jesus says, You're worth my life. And that perspective should change everything. Let's pray. Who, O Lord, could save themselves, their own soul could heal. Our shame was deeper than the sea. Your grace is deeper still. Father, forgive us when we put our trust in passing temporary things. We put our worth in those things. Please forgive us when we do that. Help us to see the wonder of the ransom payment that Jesus made on the cross. Bring us back to that, we pray. Maybe help us to see it for the very first time. And Lord, would we live in grateful delight. We love you for what you did for us on the cross. And Lord, may we have all of our riches, all of our wealth, all the wealth of others put in their right perspective, put in their place, and think of them as you would because of what Jesus did for us. In his name we pray. Amen.